0: Are you ready to learn because my super experienced guests are ready to share some really valuable information make sure and listen all the way
1: to the end to get help and support so let's start with the best audio experience hello guys welcome to our show today we discuss about user experience and conversion optimization because today it's a must-have you need to improve ux as maximum as possible 10 years ago when I started my online journey, I didn't uh, pay a lot of attention with that because uh, we have many uh, technologies to game the system to uh, manipulate results. Today, I have no of these technologies because the main technology is to satisfy user experience as maximum as possible. That's why I'm so excited to discuss this topic with Paul Bock. How are you? I am
0: very well, and yourself?
1: Yeah, I'm doing great. Monday, you know, on this day, I have positive feeling. I love this day uh, because, you know, if you set up uh, the positive mindset, everything will be And if you love your job, so yeah, you can go ahead, including satisfying user experience. Before we start, just tell more about yourself, background, and why you decided to share with us about UX.
0: So I've been working in the field of um, user experience design my entire career. So about 27 years um, to date. I started in the early 90s when obviously user experience design didn't exist as a thing. It was human-computer interaction. And uh, and I, yeah, I've been working in the field ever since. Um, I uh, worked for a dot com company for a while and was going to be a millionaire and then wasn't. Um, I'm still waiting to become a millionaire. Hasn't happened so far. Um, Then I set up an agency. I worked for an agency for um, a few years. Well, 13 years I ran an agency Um, and now I'm an independent consultant who spends most of my life traveling so at the moment i'm i'm in the middle of a desert in utah um in an rv uh, which is why the the camera isn't great and uh, hopefully the audio (laughs) and everything the internet keeps working thank you elon musk for uh for starlink it's saved my life but yes so that is my life
1: nice nice by the way uh, starlink Uh, can save a lot of Ukrainian lives in the Ukrainian-Russian war. So, yeah, uh, I'm so proud, uh, you know, that we have these technologies. Elon Musk can help uh, anyone, you know, you in the desert in Ukraine against Russia because of this terrible war that we have uh, right now. And, yeah, that's cool to have these technologies. And uh, can you tell me about UX? What are the most important elements in uh, UX design? What uh, all businesses need to consider today?
0: Oh, that's a big question.
1: Yeah, um
0: What's the, the, what's the, yeah, you don't mess around. Straight in with the big question. Okay, what's the biggest thing? Uh, it, it's actually the simplest is, is the biggest as well. Um, and it's the most fundamental, which is that we, you know, what is it that your users actually want? You know, what do they want to do? So whether you've got a web app or whether you've got a marketing web, website, why why did they come to it? What are they trying to achieve? Are they trying to, you know, complete a certain task? Do they want to answer a certain question? What is it? And it's amazing how we start so often from the wrong premise. We start from the premise of what do we want to say or what feature do we want to present when we should be starting with what do the users care about? Because the truth is they don't care about everything equally, you know. Some things are more important to them than others. Certain pieces of information, certain pieces of functionality. And if you don't know what those are, then you're just going to be incredibly disappointed um, when they they don't do what you expect them to do. So finding that stuff out up
1: front is just crucial. Let's talk about simplicity. Uh, uh, You know, I I often see when uh, websites overwhelm their content, especially in the homepage, uh, when they submit Almost all their products, uh, catalogs, but uh, when I open uh, Apple.com, I see only uh, Apple iPhone. That's it. On the first visible screen, Apple iPhone and a lot of free space from the left side, from the right side. Uh, and uh, I think it's a good approach, you know, to learn from Apple to simplify content because Apple knows how to simplify user experience. Can you tell how to find what uh, what's, uh, I mean, like, uh, what is important for the audience, customers, and only leave this information and take away the rest?
0: Okay. So... There, is, there are several things. There are kind of two elements to this. Element number one is understanding why simplicity is so key, right? Designers talk about it the whole time. Designers instinctively know that white space or negative space is important, but they, they don't really explain why, right? So that's one point. And then the second point is, what? Well, how do you decide what to remove, right? So let's take those two one at a time. Why is simplicity important? And it's because of um, human psychology and how we are wired um, uh, in the way that we think. And there is something called cognitive load. Now, cognitive load is um, where our conscious brain gets overwhelmed. Right. Um, we can't process all the information that we're being presented with. And so we kind of zone out. Right. So it's why you get things like choice paralysis. You go into a, there was a classic experiment in, in a supermarket where um, they had six types of preserves, you know, jams on the on the on the shelves. Um, and then the next week they they had 30 types of jams. Right. And you'd think that the more choice the better they would sell. But actually, the opposite is true. It was too much choice to overwhelm people. And actually, we can only hold about four things in our short-term memory in one go. And if you look at your credit card, you'll see that in action, that the 16-digit number has been split into four sets of four digits to help you remember and say yeah. So, So we get overwhelmed easily. Now, when we get overwhelmed, some interesting things happen. OK, for a start, we get in a bad mood, right? We, we become negative. We become cynical. We, we think we're being lied to, right? And that's why you get in that vicious cycle, right? Because also being in a bad mood raises your cognitive load. So, you know, those mornings when you wake up and you're grumpy, maybe you've had a bad dream or something, and the whole day is a disaster. And it's because your cognitive load has gone up and so you make more mistakes because that's another thing about cognitive load if you've got high cognitive load you make more mistakes you get frustrated you get angry it has this negative effect so in a very short summary that's why simplicity is good because if things are simple then we make less mistakes we feel more positive we feel more in control the the experience is better we sell more so Mm. that's that's the summary so the second question then becomes, well, how do we identify what to keep and what to get rid of? Well, there are a couple of different um, uh, things that I do, three different things that I do in this regard. Number one is I will do something called a top task analysis. right? And in top task analysis, you literally ask users what they care about the most, what they most want to do. And if you Google top task analysis, you'll get a great breakdown by a guy called Jerry McGovern who came up with this technique about how to do it. But essentially what you'll find is of all the different pieces of information, all the different things people want to know, a small percentage, probably less than a third of those, are the things that the majority of people care about. 80, it's almost the 80-20 rule. So a top task analysis can help focus you on the most important things. The second thing that I do is whenever I design a landing page um, of any description, I will go through, when I think it's done, I will go through and I will systematically look at every single element on that page and make it justify its existence, right? Why do we need the logo, right? What benefit does the logo provide, okay? What about the privacy policy? Why is that here? Um, and, And I ask myself, three questions in order so let's take for example the privacy policy okay the first question I ask is can I remove this right what what would happen if I removed it now the answer would probably be you're going to get in trouble with legal people you know it's you have to have it there's a legal requirement okay so we can't remove it so the second question is well could I hide it right so if I can't remove something can I hide it And uh, and then when with that question, you can hide in different ways. You could hide it under an accordion or um, under a tab or deeper in the website. Well, we're not really allowed to do that with privacy policies. Right. Even though people aren't really interested in them, there's a legal requirement. They have to be there so we can't remove it and we can't hide it. So that brings me on to question number three. Can I shrink it? Can I visually de-emphasize it on the page? the answer is yes i can it's got to be there on every page but it doesn't need to be prominent so we make it little text and we put it in the footer and you need to do that with every single element on the page can we um, uh, remove it if we can't remove it can we hide it if we can't hide it can we shrink it so that's the the second technique however there is one last problem in this scenario. Sorry, this is a very long answer to your question. Uh-huh. But if you are going to ask difficult questions, you're going to get long answers <laughs> so that the, the, the last element here is stakeholders. Right. You and I know that we've got to keep a page simple, but a lot of stakeholders don't realize that. And especially when you get multiple stakeholders across different parts of the organization. I work with a lot of big clients, you know, people like Puma or Doctors Without Borders or UNICEF or, you know, big organizations which have lots and lots of stakeholders. Now, the problem with that is everybody just wants one little thing on the homepage. Oh, I just want this on the homepage. I just want that on the homepage. And of course, together, that builds up into more and more and more and more complexity. So how do you deal with that? Well, what I started doing is getting them all together in one one room, right? I sit them all down together, and that could be Zoom. And I basically say, right, we're going to brainstorm. As many things as we think needs to go on the homepage as possible. And they will write a scaringly long list. And I actually make it a game sometimes. I split them into teams and say whoever can come up with the most things gets a prize, box of chocolates or whatever. So they go through this process and they write this massive list of things. And then I say, well, look, we've got a problem here. And our problem is that we've got about eight seconds, right? That's about the length of time people will generally spend assessing a page and deciding what to do next, right? Um, and you can even look at their analytics and get the real figure if you want to, right? But but it's usually about eight seconds. It was research done by um, Microsoft, I think it was, that came to this conclusion. Okay, so we've got eight seconds for people to see everything on this page. Now, let's say, I don't know, let's say that somebody um, can process what three elements in a second right that they can mentally see that's probably a little bit ambitious to be honest but let's 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 say they can do three right so let's then turn that into points okay attention points so three elements for 8 seconds right or well, three elements per second for 8 seconds that's 24 points of user attention now, you, I want you, group of stakeholders, to go away and assign that attention to, to, to the elements that you've come up with. So you've got 24 points of user attention. But here's the catch. If you want people to spend more of their attention looking at one thing over another, you need to give it more attention points. Everything that you add to the page has to have at least one point. That privacy policy, one point. But if you want people to be looking at your call to action more than your privacy policy, you're going to have to give it more points. Right. So off they go. Mm -hmm. And, And of course, they've got far more elements than they've got points. And so they get rid of some stuff for you. Great. We're making progress, but they'll get to a point where they'll get stuck. Um. And, and, and so they'll they'll start to go one point for this or oh, this is a really important thing. We'll give this two points and this one point and they'll spread their points as thinly as they can to cram as much into the page. But they still make progress. So when they when you finish the exercise, you say to them, "Way, well, well done, that's amazing. You've you've really got rid of a load of things. But I just want to show you something. And I bring up the Yahoo homepage and I bring up the Google homepage. Right. And I say to them, which which do you feel is better of the two? And everybody says Google. No, Google was this one, wasn't it? Everybody will say Google. And you go, Well, why is Google better? Oh, it's so easy to use, it's so simple. And I say, Yeah, they've spent all of their points on the search box. Well, Yahoo have spread their points everywhere. And it's like a light bulb moment. Suddenly they get it. And so you get them to repeat the exercise. And now they start giving the call to action 10 points, 15 points, you know, and they get rid of other stuff. So I guess the moral of the story there, and this doesn't apply just to simplicity. This applies to all user experience design that as user experience designed, we know all of this stuff, but the people we work with don't. And our job isn't to moan that they don't get it. You don't understand accounting. You don't understand HR. You don't understand marketing. So why should they understand UX? Your job is to educate them. And you don't educate people just by telling them You educate them by taking them through exercises like that, that let them discover and experience these things for yourself. So you need to consider yourself as much an educator as you do a designer. Sorry, that was the longest answer to the (laughs) simplest question ever asked.
1: Yeah, I love it. I love it. I remember, you know, once uh, I asked Lily Ray uh, to create a piece of content for my course, a short video about EAT. And she replied to me, I don't know how to share all information in 50 minutes video (laughs) about EAT. So it's like, you know, yeah, sometimes we can't, we can't reply. Uh, Just a few sentences, that's okay, because you know how to share value. Okay, let's talk about, uh, you mentioned uh, to hide elements. Uh, Once I got the study that uh, Google doesn't recommend to hide anything, because... uh, People are busy, to uh, not busy, I don't know, or or lazy, it doesn't matter. Uh, They don't click hidden elements. Uh, For example, uh, read more or anything else. Uh, Can you tell how to do it right? I mean, like, for example, if I hide some information, but if customers ignore it, what is the main reason of doing this? Yeah, so
0: we overwhelm people again it's the same thing it's cognitive load um people don't read online um they don't read online um because reading online isn't a very nice experience you're basically having light (laughs) shined in your eye you know it's not a nice reading environment so we don't read very much combined to the fact that we're busy combined with the fact that we're lazy We don't read online. We read about 20 to 25 percent of the content of a page, according to research done by the Nielsen Norman group. So how do we deal with this? Well, what users do instead is they scan pages. Um, and depending on whether something grabs their attention and they consider it interesting, they may want to n- know additional information about this. So if you've got large amounts of information you want to convey, but, um, it's not that people won't read that. Right. They'll read it if they find it interesting, if, if, if it um, grabs their attention when they scan it. Right. So. Now we know that behavior. Now we've got to come up with a solution to deal with that. Well, the solution that that I tend to work with is, um, which I pulled out of my backside one day, is this idea of content blocks. So, how do content blocks work? A content block consists of four elements, okay? Um, A title, and the title will be um, probably Three or four words long, really, really short, really snappy that summarizes the content block. What you know what your point is. Okay. the second is a description. Okay. the description probably is no more than 250 characters, you know, like a tweet, basically a long tweet. Um, And that goes into a little bit more detail. Then there is potentially an image to go with it. That's optional. Don't need that if you don't need want it. If you've got more information that you want to convey than the 250 characters, which you may still well have, then you have a link and the link goes off to a page with more details. Right. So effectively, what you're doing then is you're aiding people's scannability. They can scan a page and they could just read the headlines for each content block. Okay. oh, that that block is answers this question. I care about that question. Right. I'm going to read the description. That's great. That answers everything I need. I'm done. Or mm, I need a bit more detail. Click on the link and go through to more. So you can take anything, any big block of content, you know, paragraphs and paragraphs of text and just split them down into these content blocks. And suddenly you've got something that's much more digestible and this is using a technique called chunking and chunking is exactly the same technique they use on your credit cards where they break the numbers into four sets of four so we know that people could only consume a small amount of content at one time so we break it down into chunks so yeah that's how i deal with with if you've got a lot of content that you need to to communicate break it into content blocks
1: yeah awesome awesome okay let's talk about uh can you tell what to do first uh design or writing it's like you know uh an egg or yeah. chicken nobody knows uh, but yeah. i found many people have different approaches your approach about that
0: right um my approach is obviously the right approach he says he says arrogantly no um so this is the way that i do it so first of all i identify um the top task, what it is that people want to know, what questions they need answering, um, uh, you know, what tasks they need to complete. Step one. Step two, is <clears throat> I then bullet point. Um, those the answers to those questions. Right. So whatever those questions are, I bullet point answers. Then once I've got the, the bullet point out, um, information of what I want to communicate. Then I start organising them into those content blocks. So I write a heading, I write a short description and a link. Then once I've done that, I organise them in priority order. Which are the things people most care about? Because those need to be higher and more visible on the page. Then I wireframe, then I design. So it should always, and, and I do believe this is, you know, you were going chicken and egg. I would actually argue, no, it's not a chicken and egg. It should always start with the content because nobody. And I'll tell you why, why it should always start with the content. When was the last time you went to a website just to have a look at the lovely layout? Right. And that's you as a designer. Right. You don't Mm -hmm. do that, do you? You go to a website for the content. You don't go to it for the design. So as a result, you've got to get the content right and then fit the design around it. This is why Laura Mibson is is an abomination. Right. Because. Mm It's not the content. It's not what the page is about. You know, so you've always got. And, and I know what people will say. And, and this is an absolute valid point. They'll go, oh, my client never gives me the content. And so I have to mock it up without. Right. Make up the content. Right. Have a go yourself and it will be shit. I know it could be shit um, unless you happen to be a professional copywriter. But that's OK. Right. What it will do. It'll do two things. One is it will give you a structure around which to create the design. But two, your shitty content will um, motivate the client into providing you with better content. But also, even though you're not a subject expert and maybe not even a writer, you've probably got a pretty good handle on what people care about. And so you'll prioritize the content right on the page. And the client will start using this as a structure to provide you with content. Because the truth is most clients are as stuck about content as you are. So yeah, my advice is have a go at it yourself even if it's
1: rubbish. Yeah, yeah, nice, nice. Okay, let's talk about uh, call to action. Uh, For example, Mm. I have nice looking uh, design, with the right tags, uh, but how to submit this call to action? Because even if I have traffic, if I even I have uh, audience, uh, I need to tell them, uh, so yes. it's better to buy my products. Tell more insights about call to action.
0: Oh, that's, that's an entire book that I wrote on that subject. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a difficult one to answer. Okay, what's my main, main advice when it comes to calls to action? I would say if I could just give one piece of advice, it would be timing is everything. Right. So um, one of the big mistakes I see marketers in particular make um, is that uh, the moment you arrive on the site, they throw up a an overlay or a pop-up saying, subscribe. I'll give you a great example. The best example I ever saw, right? Um, I was speaking at a conference. I speak at a lot of conferences and occasionally as speakers, you play games, right? Cause you get bored. Um, you know, the same speakers going around the conference circle for all the time. So this particular one, we all agreed we were going to wear geeky t-shirts, right? The geekiest t-shirt we could find. So I had to go and find a geeky t-shirt. So I had some friends on Twitter They recommended a site. I went to the site. Now, I landed on this site that sold T-shirts and instantly. Right. It popped up with an overlay that said, sign up for our newsletter and get 10 percent off your first purchase. Well, I didn't know whether I wanted 10 percent off because I hadn't seen any T-shirts yet. Right. So what did I do? I closed the pop up. Right. Look around the site. And, and sure enough, they had a T-shirt I wanted. Right. Where's my 10% discount? Ah, the pop up's gone. I can't get it now. Right. So now that T-shirt looks 10% more expensive to me than it did do. Right. Because I th- feel like I should get my 10% off. I'm happy to give you my email address. I have to give you my email address anyway to get the, the order through. So I want my 10% off, but I can't get it back. And so that's an example of bad timing. It's the equivalent of when you walk into a shop, a physical shop, and the the salesperson immediately leaps on you and says, what can I get you? And you're like, I I just I've just walked in the shop. Give me a second. So when it comes to calls to action, it's about knowing the right moment to ask. Right. So to do that, you need to understand the user's state of mind and the journey that they're going on. Right. So when would have the best time to have asked me, to sign up to their newsletter probably either on the product detail page or maybe even on the shopping basket so one of the big frustrations people have with their conversion rate is oh you know it's the conversion's not working well it's because you're asking at the wrong time you know um there are lots of other factors involved in terms of the size and the positioning and and the wording on buttons and all of those kinds of things but by far the most important thing is timing
1: Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about personalization. Can you give some tips how to personalize uh, user experience? Because, yeah, uh, customers are impatient to get what they want to get. And uh, people bounce so fast because the content is not personalized for them. Any advice about personalization? Okay. Okay.
0: My first piece of advice is to forget personalization um <laughs> no it's it's not quite, but it kind of is. I think a lot of people jump into personalization before they've done the basics right mm-hmm. personalization is, is is sexy right um and, and you know oh I could get this amazing piece of software that's made incredible promises about improving my conversion rate and you know and, and personalizing the experience and all this kind of stuff. Okay. well, first of all, just find out what users need and give them that. Right. It's not difficult. You don't need some fancy piece of technology. But the point does come eventually when you've done all the basics. You've got a good, solid, usable site with good messaging, good value proposition, good product, all the rest of it. And so, yeah, you come to a point where you want to start considering personalization. The first thing I would say is don't immediately jump into purchasing some big personalization platform, which requires user users to identify themselves. Right. Because that's that's a big problem with a lot of personalization is, is, you know, that a lot of the sophisticated personalization requires you, you to know who that person is. their buying history, all that kind of stuff, you know, the kind of Amazon recommends and all of that kind of thing and that that's quite heavy duty a is quite expensive for your organization but b also is quite demanding on the user it requires the user to be logged in or to have certain privacy settings and stuff like that so before you get into all of that my first i would i would start with doing the kind of personalization you can do for completely anonymous users and you think well how could you personalize for anonymous users well um The best example of it is ad spend, right? If you're doing advertising, okay, never, ever, ever drive people through to your homepage or a generic product page, right? Because you know so much about that person that clicked on the ad. You know what their search term is. You know what the ad wording was and how that, that you know, that was um, you know, worded and what, what you were selling, what feature you were pushing. So take them through to a landing page that is personalized based on that little journey they've already had. You can do that. Another other ways you can personalize based on geography, right? You've got a good idea. I mean, it's not perfect, but you've got a good idea of where people are, and so that's another thing you can personalize based on. So maybe you you localize your content, or maybe you emphasize a different part, um, you know, as- aspect to your product or service. So you, and you don't need people to log in for that. Another one is, and one of my favorites actually is time of day. Right. Um, uh, so for example, um, I saw a really good example of this where. Um, uh, 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 it was a b2b software and they were they were selling some b2b software and so at weekends and evenings they personalized their website to say you wouldn't need to be working weekends and evenings if you had our b2b software right mm-hmm. because they knew that people were effectively doing that so there's a load of creative stuff you can do without buying some heavy duty you know fancy algorithm so i would uh, and i would encourage you to start small and build into um, personalization rather than jumping at the deep end and and the best starting point is that landing page customization and search also organic search as well you know if you t- you know that someone is searching on a particular keyword then drive them through to a landing page that engages with them on that keyword you know and and builds up to the sale
1: yeah. Valuable. Valuable. Love it. Uh, uh, Paul, I have the question about uh, interesting aspect. Um, common mistakes. Can you list mistakes yes. that uh, marketers, business owners, website owners still do? And your tips how to find a, a much better way?
0: Okay. Uh, the biggest common mistake um, is is attempting to manipulate your audience into buying um so top dark patterns or deceptive design they're, they're often referred to here um so i i think it's quite important to, to clarify what i mean by deceptive design um so i'm talking about where you use things like fear of missing out or some psychological trick to to manipulate people into buying. Um, I think that's a big mistake that a lot of people make. And I think the problem with it is the assumption that goes with it, that people assume that because dark patterns and deceptive design work, which they do, if you use those techniques, you will see an improvement to your conversion rate. Um, the assumption is that people mustn't know that you're manipulating them, right? They're ignorant. But actually, the truth is the opposite. Right. Um, so people are well aware that they're being manipulated. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you alienate them. And you. so you might be thinking to yourself, well, hang on a minute. If they know they're being manipulated, how does it still work? And it's because of an assumption that your users make. Right there. Uh, I've done lots of usability testing on, on dark patterns and they'll, they'll say things like, oh, I hate that these websites try and manipulate me, um, but I just ignore that stuff. And it's that that assumption that they can just ignore it, that that is why dark patterns work, because actually they're affecting you subconsciously. But that doesn't mean you're not aware that that site is trying to manipulate you. And of course, that massively upsets people. You know, and it, it causes all kinds of, of problems that don't show up in your analytics. So you're not necessarily aware of the problems that it's causing you. Um, and, and those problems can be far reaching. So for a start, it can affect your brand perception, which increases your marketing spend. But it also can lead to increased returns. It can lead to increased customer complaints, all of which need to be managed, all of which cost business. So so dark patterns are one problem. And I'm going to come on to how to solve these in a minute. But there is another slightly related problem, which is the problem of um, uh, people who rely on things like overlays or shouting at customers to, to get them to act. And I would say that really the solution to both of these problems is to actually work with users rather than against them. So. There is this desire all the time for short term conversion. Right. Someone has hit my site. I've only got eight seconds. You know, I said that myself. I've only got eight seconds to grab them. So let's shout at them. Let's manipulate them. Let's do whatever we can to get them to act. But actually, we don't need to do that. Yeah. Their first visit might only be eight seconds. That's fine. Right typical person will come to a website between three and 12 times before making a conversion that's okay we're not in a hurry we just need to make sure they do co- um, convert um so so really it's about going with the user journeys and knowing when to intervene in that journey so take my own website right i want people to hire me okay as a, as a user experience consultant so I could sit on this podcast now and go, hire me, hire me, I'm great, I'm wonderful, blah, 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 blah. but I don't, right, instead, I will very subtly mention that I have a a, a website that you might want to check out at boagworld.com, see how I just slipped that in, nobody noticed, very subtle, right, so hopefully people will now go off to, to my website, right, there, I just give more advice, more advice, don't, Don't sell. Don't make a big deal of of the fact that I have services. It's there, but it's in the background. But I try and get people to sign up to my newsletter. Do you want more free advice? Right. Sign up to my newsletter. So they sign up to my newsletter and then I start giving them advice week in, week out, you know, continually, always there, always in the background, always being helpful. And of course, I've got more work than I can possibly handle. Because I'm not rushing the sale. I'm not forcing people into it. I'm instead working with them. I'm going with them. I'm giving them value the whole time um, rather than just being aggressive. So, yeah, those those are the big common mistakes. I see people going too aggressive too early. There is absolutely a time to say buy my stuff. But often we do it in the wrong way and we do it too soon.
1: Yeah, nice. Love it. Yeah. overselling uh, it, it's not a good idea today because most customers are clever than ever, you know, they want to get value first. So if you give them value on your newsletter to share value as maximum as possible, so they will buy your products when the right time will come, when they know that your products can decide their problems Uh, much better than uh, hard-earned money because people usually change money uh, with products if they believe that products cost more than uh, money. So, yeah, it's the main attitude. Uh, Paul, I have the final question. Let's imagine you started from scratch without any experience, knowledge, skills. What will you do today to learn more about user experience?
0: That's, a, that's actually a really hard question. And I get asked that a lot. I get asked, or, or versions of it, I get asked questions like, you know, are, are there good university courses for this? Or, you know, what starter material would you start with? And I don't know, is the honest answer. This is a really rubbish last answer to the last question. The truth is, I don't know because I'm not in that position. Right. You know, when I was learning in the 90s, I had to make it up as I went along. Basically, there was nothing to help you. You know, there was no, you know, nothing um, previous stuff. Today, there's so much great material out there that almost the, the problem as I see it is being overwhelmed by the amount. Um, So that's that caveat said I will try my best. I think. It depends. Are we talking about learning user experience or user interface? Because they're slightly different things. And I think people often um, get the two confused and they use them interchangeably. For, for me, the user experience goes beyond the edge of the screen. It goes beyond the interface. It's the entire user experience from um, discovering they have a need all the way through to using the product for years and recommending it to other people. It happens via email. It happens via websites. It happens offline to some degree. It, you know, it happens on social media, all kinds of different environments. If we're talking about that, then I think the very first skill that you need is to understand people. Right. And, and to be able to em- emphasize I'm sorry, empathise with people. Um, so, in many ways, I think that that's the kind of fundamental building block of everything else. So, yeah, there's there's some great introductions to psychology um, that are very very light. I mean, I've you end up getting into real heavy stuff. There's a really great book I absolutely love called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. But boy, that's heavy going. A better starting point would be um, 101 Things Web Designers Need to Know About People. Right. Um, I think that's the title um, uh, is some variation. It's 101 things, you know, web designers need to know uh, either about psychology or people or something like that. I should Google it, really. Um, yeah. Which is a great introduction just into people. And then from there, I probably start, you know, going, OK, I need to understand a little bit about how to learn about people, you know, so user research. Um, and then once I understand user research, then I'm going to be interested in well, how to test ideas. So learning a bit about user testing. Um, uh, but ultimately, it 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 is an overwhelming experience. And I think you've almost got to follow what interests you. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the time that my whole career has been this has been kind of lurching from from one thing that grabs my attention to the next um rather than necessarily go right i i want to be a a ux designer so i'm going to learn the fundamentals of ux design in a very ordered way i don't work like that i go oh that's a shiny thing that looks interesting let's go and find out what about that whether that be psychology whether it be user interface design or whatever so yeah don't overthink it i think is my advice Um, yeah that's a bit of a rubbish answer to your last question, but hopefully it helps.
1: <laughs> yeah, a big pleasure. I, I love it, by the way, because uh, uh, sometimes we don't know what actually works. So if you overthink, yeah, you can yeah. procrastinate actions. You know, uh, I remember uh, Jeff Bezos shared on his meeting uh, with stakeholders. Uh, When uh, he got research about a new product and uh, they uh, told him we need to spend more time uh, by research about this product. And he replied, no way, guys, we need to implement. We need to test it to find actually uh, how this product works and then update. So uh, it's the same with overthinking. When you think a lot about research a lot, nobody knows. What works, but when you try implement fail, that's okay, you know, to fail, then uh, to learn from failure, failing and go ahead. So, yeah, I love it. Yeah, I it's...
0: think that fa- failure is failing fast is fine as long as the, the cost of failing is low. Um, yeah. so so the, the times where lots of upfront research is worthwhile is where putting together a prototype and getting it to market and seeing what happens is gonna be really expensive. You don't want to do it then. But if, you know, if you could throw together a prototype relatively quickly and relatively easily, then, yeah, let's see what happens, in, in, you know, in the real world. And I, I, I know you're trying to wrap up, but I'll give you an example of that, which is um, one of the if, I, if ever I have a product idea. Right. Maybe I want to do a new course or I want to, I don't know, launch an app or whatever. The la- I never build the thing. Right. Um, I never start doing the course or whatever. I just create a landing page for it and I try and sell it. Before I bother building it to see whether there's any interest in the marketplace, whether people are actually, um, you know, get it or not. Just one last thing, circling back to things to learn. The one little piece of advice I would give on that to leave with, which is, a, I think, a good piece to end on. One of the big mistakes I see new people in the industry make is they focus too heavily on technology or techniques. So what I mean by that is, oh, I must learn Figma, right? Or I must do customer journey mapping, right? Um, and both of those have got fundamental flaws. Technology comes and goes at a ridiculous rate, okay? And so if you're focusing all your time on technology, then you're just going to find your skills are redundant very, very quickly. With with techniques like customer journey mapping, yeah, sure, they they last. But I think a lot of people get in the mindset of I must do customer journey mapping every project. I must do usability testing every every time. And every project is slightly different. And I don't think you can get into those. I must do my mindsets. So when it comes, I think the most valuable stuff that you can learn as a user experience professional are soft skills, are learning about people how people think and how people interact because people don't change or at least they only change on evolutionary timescales and not on you know digital timescales so those are the skills that are going to last you for your entire career so probably you want to start with those anyway i'll sharp now because you've been trying to wrap this up for about 10 minutes
1: yeah nice love it love it uh Paul, it's a big pleasure to get on my show, to learn from you, tell our audience how they can reach out to you, learn more about you, subscribe to your newsletter, uh, and any other stuff, how the best way to uh, stay sure. in touch with you.
0: So so I've been, um, I've been blogging for over 16 years now. So there's 16 years worth of blog posts and stuff to check out at boagworld.com, B-O-A-G, world.com. Um, if you if you add a forward slash subscribe to that you can check out my newsletter you can see some previous um, stuff that I write about basically most of my attention these days has moved to um, my newsletter um, because I found that that blogging has increasingly turned into an SEO exercise Um, Mm -hmm. uh, and SEO is really just about answering people's questions you know how do I get Figma to you know auto do auto layout well that's not the kind of thing i tend to write a lot about i'm more t- talking about concepts and ideas so if that appeals to you then check out the newsletter i would recommend twitter you know boagworld.com uh, on twitter but let's be honest twitter probably won't be around in a few weeks so um so there's no <laughs> point in doing that one is there <laughs> so yeah boagworld.com
1: We'll see, we'll see. By, by the way, Elon Musk made a good job with Starlink. Uh, he saved our podcast. True. And I'm grateful, Elon Musk, for <laughs> saving yeah. this episode. Uh, I'm not sure about Twitter, we'll see. I don't know <laughs> what what will be on Twitter because of his activity. I know that some people hate what he does. Someone can tell, okay, he's a game changer. We'll see. So nobody knows. I'll
0: tell, I, I tell you one thing, one interesting thing about um the way things are going is I think it teaches all of us not to build our brands, our careers, our apps or someone else's platform. So the reason, you know, when you asked me where, where where people should find out more, the reason I didn't emphasize Twitter and I emphasize my newsletter is because when someone signs up to my newsletter, I, I own the newsletter. You know, if if Twitter changes its algorithm, if Google changes their algorithm, I'm stuffed, right? You know, if I rely on those platforms. But email, the website, those are things that are universal. I own them. So I I think that's a good piece of advice generally is to own your platforms, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, awesome, awesome. Yeah, I agree. Email will be uh, for a long time, uh, probably forever. We'll see. Uh, And yeah, uh, I... Many times met this attitude when LinkedIn changed algorithms, YouTube changed algorithms, Google changed because these platforms uh, need to pay attention to something that works for them. That's okay. You know, if they change, uh, update because they think more about UX. So, but you can control an own email. You can control on your website. I completely agree with that. So love it. Uh, Paul, it's a big pleasure again. Thanks for your time that you found this time on this dessert, you know, so it's double pleasure. Guys, you need to follow Paul. You can find all the links in the description below. Listen us on Apple, Google, Spotify, and see you next time. Thanks for listening to this entire podcast.
0: Please rank your experience in Apple, Spotify, Google, or any other platforms that you may use. Also, please share your ranking mark on chat at seotools.tv to get a special gift. We'll see you soon on other valuable audio podcasts.